Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. Today, we're going to be talking about research and trends in sexual health. I'm going to be sharing with you the findings of three interesting studies. The first is a study on the number of sexual partners in individuals over age 50. Some interesting findings there that you will want to hear about. I'm also going to talk to you about a study around condom negotiation patterns in adults age 18 to 25. Then I'm going to be talking about a study on how consensual non-monogamy affects access to healthcare. I'm going to be giving you a sex IQ quiz, and I'll be quizzing you on the use of Viagra in women, what men find sexy, and risk factors for postpartum depression. I'm going to end today's episode with a, a great and lively interview with a sex therapist who just published her new book on her reflections as a sex educator, researcher, and therapist. And we will have a conversation about trends that she sees in her sex therapy practice in New York and the trends that I'm seeing in my sex therapy practice here in Los Angeles, California. So let's get sex savvy. So I was invited last week by CNN.com to share some reflections and thoughts on a new study that was recently published by a group of British researchers on certain lifestyle factors that affect the number of sexual partners that people have over age 50. Now, for those of you who didn't see the article on CNN.com or, or want extra information about this study, What's interesting about this study is that it focuses, as I said, on the older population, 50 and up. So obviously 50 isn't old, but for purposes of this study, that you know, it's considered 50 and up. And there aren't a lot of studies that focus on older adults in terms of sexuality. So there's a lot more research needed out there to help us understand the patterns and practices of older adults. But they did find that there were some specific socio-demographic and behavioral factors that determined not just who might be at risk for STIs, but also the number of sexual partners that they have. So I'm going to share some findings with you now from this study and then give you my take and my sort of reflections on some of these findings and see if they line up with what I'm seeing in my clinical practice. One of the findings that that I find interesting but not surprising is that in terms of the males that participated in the study, the highest income earners and the lowest income earners had the highest number of sexual partners. So the men in the top 20% income bracket and then the men in the bottom 20% income bracket 
correlated to highest numbers of sexual partners. So in terms of the men who earn high income, no surprise, right, that they have a higher number of sexual partners because income often makes men more appealing just due to the associated status and opportunities that wealth brings. Men with money are perceived as being able to offer more such as travel and gifts and fine restaurants and so on. And this leaves women perhaps more motivated to sleep with them in the hopes that they might secure a certain lifestyle that uh, would be appealing to them. In terms of the bottom 20%, this also makes sense to me. And so stick with me now. Because men who earn low income, have less status, just based on our cultural norms and values, they may rely more heavily on sex and or sexual conquests to feel masculine and shore up their self-esteem. And so men who can't offer money tend to up their game in terms of other things that they can offer women. And they may be much more uh, motivated to bed as many women as possible to help them feel masculine due to that income inequality that leaves them feeling like they have less to offer. Another finding in this study was that women who are sporty, that was the term they used in Britain that we are here in the U.S. interpreting as physically fit and likely to engage in exercise that women who were sporty had a higher number of sexual partners. And again, this makes sense just based on our culture, that women who experience body image issues, negative self-concept, feel fat, are more likely um, to feel insecure about the way that they look and hence less comfortable engaging in sexual activity. So women who are sporty, it would probably be more likely to be comfortable with their body and less burdened by that self-consciousness and less likely to fall into that trap around sort of the beauty standards. Many of my female patients describe body image issues as a significant deterrent to engaging in sex. I hear women all the time say that they're Boyfriends and husbands want them to go on top during sex and sort of ride their partner, um, but they feel self-conscious because then their partners have a view of their stomachs and, and maybe they're not as trim as they would like to be. Maybe they have stretch marks. Maybe there's you know fat there that they are unable to uh, get over their partners witnessing that. And so they in no way would be comfortable getting on top uh, with the lights on for sure or during the day when it's bright and they sort of want to hide their bodies as much as possible. And so no surprise that women who are um, not sporty or, or not fit would have a lower number of sexual partners. Also, not just in terms of their own comfort, but in terms of interest from men, women who have athletic figures and come across as fit and healthy are more likely to be appealing to men as well and may have more opportunities to go on dates 
and therefore more opportunity to have sex. There are two other findings from this study that I want to briefly mention. The first is that men and women who use alcohol regularly or frequently have higher number of sexual partners. Well, this is completely understandable because alcohol has a disinhibiting effect, commonly referred to as liquid courage, which can impair judgment or enable people to be more receptive to sexual activity than they might be if they were sober. They're also more likely to hang out in a bar or a club or go to parties where there's a social expectation, a hookup culture, and uh, an increased possibility of partnering up with someone and having sex. So that finding is not surprising at all. The final finding I want to mention to you, and there are many more findings um, in this study than what I'm sharing with you today, so you can check the study out as well. But the other finding I thought was important to note was that homosexual men report having a higher number of sexual partners after age 50 than non-homosexual men. But I want to uh, stress here that this is much more likely a male issue than a gay issue. Men have 10 times more testosterone than women at virtually all stages of life. So gay men share a hormonal push for sexual outlet, whereas heterosexual couples must contend with often discrepant biologic drives. The second study I want to discuss with you today, I think is really fascinating and such important work. The study is called, Are We Blinded by Desire, Relationship, Motivation, and Sexual Risk-Taking Intentions During Condom Negotiation? And this study was published by Shana Skakun-Sparling from the University of Gulf and Kenneth Kramer from the Department of Psychology at the University of Windsor. And what they looked at in this study was how heterosexual men heterosexual women and men who sleep with men think about and negotiate use of condoms during sexual encounters, especially with uh, first-time partners. So not only did the authors study gender and orientation as factors influencing condom negotiation, but they also looked at what they called relationship motivation, which they defined as the motivation to establish and maintain long-term romantic relationships. So in other words, how interested you were in a partner, how attractive they were to you in terms of a future relationship, how suitable do they seem to you in terms of whether or not you might want to pair up with them for a meaningful ongoing relationship as opposed to just having sex. And what they found was that this motivation around uh, long-term relationships was actually uh, an important variable in terms of condom negotiation. So in my clinical practice, I'm chronically surprised and appalled, frankly, at how many young adults and older adults um, as well do a terrible job of negotiating safe sex. And I just am forever shocked at the limited comfort and ability that people have to initiate 
conversations about condom use and contraception and sexual history. And so um, I'm forever educating people about safe sex and what that really means and role-playing with them around how to have these awkward conversations. So let me go ahead now and share some of the results from this really interesting study. Results showed that each of the three groups, heterosexual men, heterosexual women, and homosexual men, each had a preference for different condom negotiation styles or strategies. Heterosexual men tended to choose more passive strategies, like just, you know, putting a condom on or not putting a condom on and uh, putting the burden on the woman to have to start that conversation and initiate that dialogue. And they were also most likely of the three groups to agree to have sex without a condom. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment. The heterosexual women in the study tended to choose more assertive strategies like no glove, no love, and um, were willing to withhold sex until and unless a man uh, was willing to use a condom. And then men who had sex with men tended to aim for a balance of styles, choosing more verbal strategies than heterosexual men, but selecting styles that were non-confrontational. I think that's completely interesting. Another interesting finding in this study suggests that heterosexual women may be more willing to tolerate certain risks of exposing themselves to potential STIs if they feel like the person they're sleeping with is good relationship material and if they have a higher relationship motivation. And so having a belief that a partner could end up being you know, a boyfriend or a spouse does indeed impact on a partner's choice around whether to communicate about sexual safety and sexual history and whether not to. Beliefs about condom use, the study says, and how a partner may feel about condoms can impact whether condom use is raised in a sexual encounter For example, they say some individuals, even those with favorable condom attitudes, discount the protective benefits of condoms, and instead they worry that insisting on condoms could interfere with having an enjoyable sexual encounter or with having sex at all. So I've had women say to me, you know, I really liked the guy. He was really into me. I was really into him. And I just didn't want to be that person who says, you know, so you know, what's your sexual history, you know, and that is actually a deterrent because they worry that they might come across as um, either bossy or suspicious or even promiscuous. Conversely, what I find for men who come and see me, the more interested they are in a woman, the less likely they are to want to use a condom because they want to show that they are sexually functional and can get and keep a reliable erection. And so they're worried that if they use a condom, that the sensation will be decreased and they will become flaccid. So the more interested they are, they're also less likely to wear a condom, but for different reasons. And if 
if a guy thinks, gosh, this woman really is someone I could take home to meet my mom, he's going to want to not risk losing that erection by putting a barrier on. Another thing I want to share with you that I hear from women, heterosexual women in my office, is that they at times resent being the ones who have to initiate the condom conversation. They sort of intuitively know that men would rather not wear a condom if a woman is okay with that, and that they're less likely, men are less likely to be the ones that say, you know what, I want to make sure that you're safe and and I respect you, so I want to, you know, go get a condom. You you stay right here and I'll be right back. So women feel sometimes resentful about the burden of that responsibility and wish that men would share in the initiation of that conversation so they don't feel like it's up to them, like they're the bad guy, like they're the ones who are shutting down the pleasure for the guy. So I hear that a lot from women. The study also points out that unlike other health behaviors and choices, like losing weight or quitting smoking, that condom use requires some amount of dyadic cooperation and negotiation, i.e. a conversation. And I hear from people in my office all the time, women and men saying, you know, it's so awkward or it takes away from the passion or, you know, it's just not sexy. And I say to them, if you can't have a conversation about sex, then you have no business having sex. And then I try to do some reframing with them around how conversation about condom use or other types of safe sex practices should convey or could convey a sense of self-care and self-respect that they're sending a message from the get-go that they value their health, their sexual health, and that they're not going to take any risks. So if I were considering sleeping with a new partner, I would respect that person for caring for their own health and would not in any way see that as a buzzkill, but rather something that would allow me to have even a higher amount of respect for them. The bottom line regarding this study is that women, heterosexual women, were the group least likely to engage in condomless sex. The homosexual group of males were in the middle in terms of comfort and willingness to engage in condomless sex. And no surprise, it was the heterosexual men, the straight men, who were the most comfortable engaging in condomless sex. I want to touch briefly on a third study today, and this study was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine recently, and it addresses the healthcare needs and stigmatization of people who participate in a consensual non-monogamy, so also referred to as CNM. And these are people who engage in sexual contacts outside of their primary relationship. But the difference is rather than keeping secrets and cheating, their partner is aware of these outside contacts and their partner gives their blessing and consent for them to engage in these extramarital or extra pair contacts. 
The title of the study is Healthcare Experiences and Needs of Consensually Non-Monogamous People Results from a Focus Group Study. I treat a lot of people who identify themselves as consensually non-monogamous. They often report to me that they have experienced negative encounters with healthcare professionals as a result of their lifestyle choice. The study sought to explore both positive and negative experiences of consensually non-monogamous individuals within the healthcare system specifically, as well as specific needs of these patients regarding inclusive healthcare practices. And what they found, no surprise, is that uh, CNM patients reported challenges in addressing their healthcare needs related to A, lack of provider knowledge, B, inadequate preventative screenings, and C, stigmatizing behaviors that impact their health and trust in the healthcare system. And the authors go on to say that healthcare providers must monitor and work to avoid making assumptions and pathologizing individuals who engage in CNM by creating an open, accepting environment to work collaboratively with members of the consensual non-monogamy community to meet their unique sexual health needs. And the reason I wanted to just mention this study and the results is because I see people in my office who share horror stories of how they were treated by physicians or nurses or even therapists relating to their lifestyle choices. And I just wanted to remind everyone that sexual differences um, should not prevent people from accessing healthcare and that we as a culture must do a better job of accepting people who are different than ourselves, especially when it comes to sexual practices. I even get calls from therapists on a regular basis who say they have a, a new client who identified themselves as polyamorous or engaging in swinging, and they either don't want to work with them because it is offensive to them personally, or they don't know how to treat them because they don't have any frame of reference in terms of, of exploring that lifestyle, or they just feel uncomfortable generally talking about sex and sexual issues, and they, you know, speed dial their their clients to me if there's any hint or note of sexuality in general and non-consensual monogamy in particular. So I just wanted to mention this study because I think it's important that we as a culture and that I as a therapist and I as a host of a podcast on sexual health stress that we need to demarginalize groups who have limited access to healthcare. I'll just say that these individuals are your neighbors, your bosses, they're teaching your children. They're in essence no different than you, except that they are engaging in an openly non-consensual sexual relationship. So, how sex-savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. Okay, it's time for this week's Sex IQ quiz. Question number one is a true-false question. Viagra works for women. True or false? 
Well, this is a tricky one because technically the answer is true, but in a practical way, the answer is false. Let me explain. There have been studies done to determine whether or not the same physiological processes unfold in women as they do in men. And women were hooked up to machines in laboratories and asked to take Viagra or other PDE5 class of drugs like Levitra or Cialis or others. And what we were able to see in the laboratory is that, yes, physiologically, biologically, the same thing occurred. Increased pupillary dilation, heart rate went up, blood pressure went up, and blood did rush to the genitals. That that vascular process did indeed occur in women. But when asked if they were aroused, when asked, are you turned on, the women said no. So this leads us back to the point that for women, there's a subjective and an objective experience of sexual arousal. A woman might be physiologically turned on, but not intellectually or emotionally turned on. And it's not going to translate for her from the physical to the emotional or intellectual. And so without being motivated emotionally and intellectually, a woman may have trouble uh, accessing that sexual arousal. Whereas for men, if a man's turned on, he knows he's turned on, he can feel it he can see it, right? There's an an erection that manifests. For women, not only are our genitalia internal, but our experience of arousal is also internal as well. Okay, question number two. Now, this is based on my clinical experience as a sex therapist, but I've seen research that lines up with these results as well. So it's a multiple choice question. And the question is, according to heterosexual men, the biggest turn on is A, an enthusiastic, responsive partner, B, a physically fit tone partner, C, a pretty face, or D, a virgin, having sex with a virgin. So we have an enthusiastic, responsive partner, physically fit partner, pretty partner, or a virgin partner? And the answer is absolutely A. I've been hearing from men for 25 years that being with a woman who is having a good time, who appears to be authentically and genuinely enjoying herself and having pleasure and who can be responsive to sexual stimulation is the biggest turn on, much more so than a woman with a nice body or a woman with a pretty face, um, because they could be fit and pretty, but not responsive and not enthusiastic. And a lot of men say to me, they'd much rather have sex with someone who maybe has a little extra weight or who isn't as beautiful in her face, but who is really enthusiastic and excited about having a sexual encounter. Also, a lot of men, um, sort of counterintuitive, you would think that men would be turned on by having sex with a virgin, but what I hear from men is that a virgin is unlikely to enjoy herself or be responsive, and they don't want to hurt her if it's her first time, and she's less likely obviously, to have 
a sense of what she likes because she's never had intercourse before. And so um, a lot of men say that having sex with a virgin actually feels quite burdensome. So if you agree with this, if you're a guy who uh, would prefer an enthusiastic partner over a pretty woman or someone with a great body or a virgin, let me know. If you disagree and find one of the other answers to be considerably more appealing, let me know that as well and let me know why. Okay, question number three. Which of the following is not a risk factor for postpartum depression in women? A, having a C-section. B, not breastfeeding. C, the quality and quantity of sex. Or D, having a first baby. This one's a toughie if you don't know a lot about postpartum depression. And I'll take these one by one and I'll let you know which is the correct answer. So A, having a C-section, that actually is a risk factor for postpartum depression. Women who have C-sections often feel gypped or robbed of the vaginal birth experience, which can cause them to feel depressed. Also, if they have a C-section, they are less likely to interact with their baby immediately upon delivery, and they also are less likely to be able to care for and hold the baby because of the recovery period following the surgery. And so sometimes they have more trouble bonding or they feel left out or jealous because they're not able to have those early moments with the baby as they would if they had had a vaginal delivery because they are recovering from surgery. So having a C-section is indeed a risk factor for postpartum depression. B, not nursing. Well, actually, not nursing is a risk factor for postpartum depression. So if you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, it wasn't until fairly recently in history that we had any alternative to breast milk to feed our young. And so if a woman doesn't lactate, her body, her her kind of DNA assumes that her baby died because if she's not feeding the baby, the baby must not exist because our bodies haven't caught up to the idea that we have formula that we can offer babies as nutrition. And a lack of, of breastfeeding signals physiologically that the baby didn't survive, which can be a risk factor for postpartum depression. Also, women who aren't able to nurse sometimes feel like they're, again, being robbed of a bonding experience with their babies, especially if they intended to nurse and they're just physically not able to or emotionally not able to. They feel very, very sad about not giving their babies the best nutrition Conversely, women who choose not to nurse because it just doesn't feel like that's a comfortable choice for them sometimes feel guilty about not, not breastfeeding, even though they're physically capable of doing so. And that guilt and shame, especially in light of the you know public service announcements and campaigns that breast milk is best, can often leave women feeling like they're not doing what's best for their baby and that can cause uh, postpartum depression as well. C, quality and quantity of sex. This is the red herring here. This is the outlier. This has no bearing on the risk for postpartum depression. It may have risk on overall 
satisfaction in the marriage, but it is not a risk factor for postpartum depression per se, except to say in that the better the sex and the more satisfied someone feels sexually, the more likely they are to feel bonded and connected to their spouse, which in turn might allow them to feel more supported after delivery and would be a protective factor. But just the variable of of the how often you have sex is not a risk factor for postpartum depression. Then letter D, having a first baby, that is indeed a risk factor for postpartum depression. Women who have their first child are more at risk for experiencing postpartum depression than women who have a second or third or fourth baby. And then I think at some point, the risk goes up again after a certain number of children. I think it's five or more. It may have been four or more. I have to check the research. But once you have a certain number of offspring in the home, then that becomes another risk factor for postpartum depression. But having a first baby, it makes sense because it's a big change and you may go from working to not working and it may affect your identity as no longer, you know, contributing in a certain way as a professional. Also, you know, you're sleep deprived and adjusting to all these role changes and sexual changes. And it can be very overwhelming in a way that having a second or third baby isn't because you've kind of already done it. It's not your first rodeo. So C-section, not breastfeeding and having a first baby are risk factors for postpartum depression. Quality and quantity of sex are not. I'm thrilled to introduce my guest for today. Her name is Dr. Bridget Finn. She's the founder and president of the Capital Region Center for Sexual Health in Troy, New York, and the author of the newly published book, Inspired Vagina, Capable Penis. I love that. (laughs) Uh, Bridget, welcome to Sex Savvy. Thank you for having me, Kimberly. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk about your life as a sex therapist and what inspired you to publish this book. Well, you know, I've been doing sex therapy, sexual health, uh, teaching, researching for about 35 years. And I was actually working on another book project and I started collecting all of my notes and thoughts and journals that were uh, that I collected over the years from conversations that I had with literally thousands of people, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I would just kind of jot things down and thoughts and observations, reflections and questions. And as I was looking at them all, I thought, you know, this might be kind of cool to publish. And I think people might enjoy reading it as a partial collection of some of yeah. those uh, stories and, and conversations I've had over the years. So these would be reflections and stories that you had with clients? Yeah, like clients, During therapy? Yeah, could be during therapy, could be in my hair salon, could be on an airplane, could be with friends. Okay. You know, you, you name it. Yeah. Do you find, like I do, that the conversation tends to kind of meander that way <laughs> organically <laughs> when you're around? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. It, and sometimes yeah. I, I'm thinking, ah, I'm not really going to say what I do for a living today. Me too. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> but know? then inevitably people, well, what kind of therapist are you? That's do you have right. a specialty? Yeah. Sometimes I just say I'm a professor, Yeah, you know, exactly. and I don't, I don't yeah. go into it. It, it kind of depends on my mood, whether yeah. I'm up for yeah. going there or not. Exactly. It depends on my That's mood. Really it depends. 
depends on kind of who's asking. And I just, I was at the deli the other day um, and a woman (laughs) started talking to me about her husband's erectile dysfunction. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing this. So these conversations for me happen everywhere. And the book is a collection of, you know, the, the, the insights in the book are really um, shared truths within and among all of the conversations and stories. Um, And I purposely, Kimberly, I did not fill in the blanks for people. So it's really my -hmm. my point of the book is that you take it and you use it to help you have the conversation about sex. So you let you letting people come up to their own conclusions. Absolutely. Their own conclusions. I left yeah. it very organic. And, and you know, there's some of it that's pretty irreverent and kind of funny and humorous and some that are a little more serious. And But there's something in there for everyone. And it's really just about looking at something and saying, huh, you know, I never thought of it that way or, uh, you know, expanding our narrative about sex and intimacy. And people are loving having a tool to sort of use with each other to have conversations, you know? Yeah. I was reading some of the reviews of your book online last night in preparation for our interview today. And people are really grateful. They appreciate it's a good conversation starter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is really, you know, think about it. I mean, my son is 14. He just had some more, you know, sex education in school. And it's really just so inadequate. It's undertaught. It's not discussed. And then we don't, end up with the the confidence and the vocabulary and the permission. So this book just kind of gives people something to to look at and jump off with and have fun with. You know, I don't know about you, but Absolutely. you know, sex can be so heavy for people and it's not that it's not important and meaningful, but it gets heavy, which leads to just sadness and anxiety and what's wrong with me? Shame, shame, right? shame so much yeah. shame. And so yes. this book is kind of, you know, there's parts of it that are kind of fun. That's yeah. wonderful. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Tell me about the title. I love the title. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I'll give you, I'll give you a little background. So my my office space is in a building in downtown Troy, and I put out uh, book promotion cards announcing the book, and they kept getting stolen, and I was like, oh my gosh, right? <laughs> you know, and and in the lobby is also my business card, uh, which has the word sex on it and all this kind of stuff. And that kind of gets turned around and taken and all of that. Um, and so the title, <laughs> you know, to me, the title is when I meet women, they want to feel like having sex. They, they need to be inspired. They want to be emotionally turned on. And for men, it's I want my penis to be hard. I want it to last long enough. I want it to be big enough. You know, so it's about she wants to feel like it and he wants to be able to, you know. So that's kind of where the title came from. And, And my clients are having such a good time sort of, you know, texting me with the book in their hand in public, you know, saying have the conversation and being super brave to be holding the book with that title you know, out in public. So right. Without the brown paper bag over it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, So it's been, you know, um, maybe a little bit of an eye opener, which I probably needed again, because I'm in my room all the time with people too, that Mm -hmm. um, the, the title scares the shit out of people. You know, I don't know if it's the inspired vagina that's terrifying, the capable penis or the combination or. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, (laughs) in a nutshell, I mean, you just hit it out of the park. Women want to be inspired and men want to have reliable functioning. 
That's they right. want a capable right. penis and women want an inspired <laughs> vagina. <laughs> and I love how you personified, you know, the, the genital pieces and parts. I just think it's adorable. I love it. Yes. I think oh, just the you. title, just the title is worth a read. <laughs> it really, it, it really is just, it's fun. And, and, you know, I purposely uh, had the book designed so it's visually um, appealing and inspiring and it's sensual to the touch. So I tried to really put the effort into touch on the senses. Um, so when you touch the book, it's very sensual and the, the uh, typophile who did the, the words and the design, it's just, it's pretty stunning. And the words and the way they're outlined and laid out just really speak to what it is I'm trying to say, you know? I love it. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. So you've been a sex therapist for a long time, as have I. Yeah, forever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm starting my 26th year now and you're a little bit ahead mm-hmm. of me. So between the two of us, yeah. that's a long we have 60 years of of sex therapy <laughs> insights and experience to share with the world and that's really one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I felt like great. you know, after 25 years, I have a lot of insights. Yes, you do. Yeah. And people are dying to talk about it. Dying. Let's talk about the kinds of themes that are bringing people into your office, because I have noticed, you know, things, trends come and go sexually Mm -hmm. and based on the political climate and other news and, you know, events that are happening. It tends to shape um, the types of things that people are reaching out for help. So tell me yeah. kind of what is your so-called bread and butter these days? Well, you know, Kimberly, I just, I do want to speak to, uh, after the election, I did open my doors to women to come in uh, and talk about how they were feeling about the election. And I had to do it twice. Uh, there, it, there was an overflow of people yes. who wanted to come in and talk. Yes, now, yes. Prior, prior to this administration, honestly, no one came in talking about politics. Um, and this time around, I, I do not get through a session pretty yeah. much nine out of 10 times where somebody doesn't end up back there. And I had people coming into me who shared their uh, stories of uh, sexual abuse um, yep. that had never shared them before, men and Me women. Me too. Me too. Another big change or continuation of that was this whole Me Too thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm in. I work in Hollywood. I'm I'm an LA girl. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, right. You know, right in the backyard of the entertainment industry. Yeah. And yeah. I had actors, famous actors, producers, directors, composers, you name it, coming in terrified that they were going to be the next one to be accused, the next one to be taken down. And men were coming in and saying, you know, in 2014 at the Christmas party, I made a comment about someone's, you know, whatever. And do you think I, do you think that, yeah. Do you think that was, you know, check qualifies and do you think I could end up losing my job? And these men were sweating bullets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the positives has certainly been the increase in conversation, you know, get, getting these conversations out about what this all means, learning that we're not alone. I don't know about you, but pretty much every woman I know has uh, had some kind of experience on some level uh, across the continuum. Yep. Um, and, right. and really just coming in and, and feeling um, deflated. So I didn't have what you're talking about as many uh, men coming in saying, oh gosh, I'm worried as much mm-hmm. as women coming in 
and just saying, you know, I'm just so sad. I just, you know, this is just, and, and where, where are the men standing up for us? There was a, 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 right. a feeling of that. Why, why aren't they marching in the streets saying we got your back? You know, right, right. Kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. And then the cap and then, and then the Kavanaugh hearings oh. just added oh. insult to injury yeah. for a lot of women yeah. as well. Yeah. So there's been like a, a pattern of news uh, and world events well, that I think have shifted the climate a little exactly. bit. Exactly. And I think it also just really highlights that sex is political, you, you know, all, and, and that's something that we don't talk about so much, you know, the politics and sexuality. Always has, always been. has been, always has yeah. been. In fact, I have an upcoming episode of this podcast where I'm talking about, you know, historical perspectives mm-hmm. on sexuality throughout different periods yeah. in history. Yeah. Fascinating. Sex has always been political and always will be. I agree 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. I have um, my clinical space and then I have an education art gallery space. And oh, on, how neat. On, yeah, it's cool. On the walls is all kinds of art uh, reflecting sex and sexuality along with written art. And I have a big print of the Scarlet Letter. Right. And just sort of like, you oh, know, so the, the room is really, yeah, it's really it. cool. People can go in and just kind of look at things and and reflect on things. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, it was really, uh, it's, yeah. it's been really fun, you know, different way of kind of taking inf- information wow. in. Do you see more men than women? Is it pretty equal? It's pretty equal, you know. And I also, one of the major myths, uh, the whole idea that women don't want to have sex and intimacy and men always do. I, I have just as many women who are are fighting for good sex and intimacy yes. in their lives and men who are just kind of unconscious and, uh, you know, maybe, yes. maybe they're, they're not feeling their desire. And, and here's the thing, right? So for a woman to say, I love sex, I want sex, intimacy is important to me. There's a shame that comes with that. And then for a right, guy right. to say, gosh, you know, I'm not rock hard 24 seven and I really don't feel yeah. like it. And there's the shame for him. Right. So definitely, bringing definitely. in sort of, um, you know, am I alone in this feelings that people have? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I see that too. I see a lot of women complaining that they're not getting laid, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Instead of the the sort of stereotypical I guy that, that would say, you know, I think another thing that's really interesting, and I'm wondering if you experience this in your practice is, I think since Me Too especially, but even before, there were some women who... <laughs> This is sort of counterintuitive. We're complaining that their husbands were too gentle and too passive and too respectful yeah. in the yeah. bedroom. Yeah. And they were like, you know, I just want to get fucked. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny. Bang, <laughs> bang me as hard as yeah. you can. Don't yeah. be so tentative. Yeah. Don't be so, exactly. you know, just take yeah. me and be, be my man. Yeah, throw yeah. me down, you know? Yeah, yeah. So true. You know, it's so funny. It's so what, what women say to me most often is is exactly that. I want them to just put me up against the wall and fuck me. Yes. You know, and um, and I think there's that whole you know, women are running, you know, businesses and we're, we're very much plugged into, you know, a masculine energy and alpha energy during the day. But when women go home, they want their guy or their partner to be uh, assertive and yes. um, aggressive in the bedroom. Yes. And they want that, um, that seduction. And I mean, that was the whole, right. The 50 shades of gray was yeah. all about that emotional turn on that yeah. she had mm-hmm. from the love story and sort of that taking of her, all she had to do was give permission. Yeah. And, you know, so yeah, I see that a lot. Women want, women want some hot sex. 
Women you know? want some hot sex. Yeah. I also, I'm telling you, yeah. I also see a lot of angry women. I don't know if you do, but mm-hmm. I, I always say I could mm-hmm. fill Dodger Stadium with angry, pissed off women. Oh, can't you feel it when you open your waiting room door? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's, it's beyond resentment. It's like a contempt almost mm-hmm. yes, that they have absolutely. toward their husbands and boyfriends. Um, that is really palpable again. And so I think, yeah, women are pissed off. Uh, for, not yeah. just because their partners are tentative in the bedroom, but for many, many reasons. And yeah, I, yeah. I think that that gets in the way a lot for women too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and, and right. Energy is, is a turn on or a turn off, you know, right. anger is not sexy. It's not, uh, you know, um, so that, that's something that's, that I talk about in my book is, you know, is your, is your energy a turn on or is it a turn off? Are you an Love Eeyore? It. Eeyore's yeah. never sexy. Right. You know, <laughs> so, so, so people's energy. I also see a lot of uh, relationships that are just uninspired, off the rails, dead in the water. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I see too is typically if, if the intimacy has flatlined, there's been sort of a generalized flatline in someone's oh, sure. life. They're, sure. Right. They're not happy. There's no joy. Um, they're just kind of getting through the day. And, and so for me, it's sort of like, I think it's super important for people know to know that if we can work on and tweak some of those things, getting you right. a life, getting you inspired, getting you alive, getting you plugged right. in, that can have a, a great impact on your feelings of desire and, and vitality. Um, but I see couples come in who are just, you know, bored quite frankly, yeah. in their yeah. in their lives as individuals yes. and then together, right? And how, how do you expect to have an inspired vagina if you don't have an inspired life? <laughs> there you go. And you know, it's so funny because sometimes I'll often say to a woman, she might come in and say, oh, you know, I, I have no desire. I'm not feeling anything. And I'll say, you know, what is your partner doing to help inspire you? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just crickets. Yeah. And, and the women that I see that come in that that claim they have no desire, mm-hmm. they're often mistaken. What they yeah. mean is they have no desire for their partner. There you go. But they yeah. have sexual energy in their body. They have sexual dreams. They are aware of, you know, they notice attractive people regardless yeah. of, you know, whatever their orientation may be. Mm-hmm. And they they even often have enough sexual energy and libido to masturbate. It's just Absolutely. not translating to their partner. To their partner. And then yeah. once once I distinguish that for them and I'm able to say that this is a situational rather than a global problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my listeners know what that means because I did a 101 on the different classifications and how we uh, categorize sexual dysfunction. Right. So when I explain to them that it's it's an acquired situational psychological problem, yeah, instead yeah. of a lifelong global exactly. uh, organic problem, yeah. Yeah. then all of a sudden they stand a little bit taller and they say, "Yeah, I I'm not sexually dead inside. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm just having a uh, an output problem toward this particular partner at this yeah. time." Yeah. Exactly. Or the symptom is in her, right? Uh, of, of the larger relationship uh, breakdown, you know? Right, right. Um, and she'll, you know, so women will come in and say, oh, I, I, have, I have hyposexual desire disorder. And it's really not. It's really just a, uh, I'm not feeling it for the one I'm with. And I don't know right. how to get there, you know? Right. Um, and, so or, a lot of you know and or I'm 
depressed or stressed mm-hmm. um, or yeah. I have kids that run me ragged and I work That's two jobs right. or, yeah. you know, so it's all about that inspired life. Exactly. And let's, you know, it's, it's when I work with people, I'm sort of like, okay, where are you at? You know, are you, are you doing the basics? Are you sleeping well? Are you eating well? Are you moving your body? Do you have friends? Do you have passions and interests and hobbies? How's your spiritual life? What's your environment look like? All of those things that people don't necessarily connect with with our our sexual interest and and um, willingness and all of that, a lot of pelvic pain in women. I work with a me, I, me too. yeah, I do a um, I have an endo sisterhood group. Uh, I work with a lot of women who are struggling with endometriosis and pelvic pain, and I do a lot of work with the pelvic floor physical therapists and working me with too. the partners around you know how how to. Uh, experience pleasure and intimacy, um, you know, moving beyond orgasm, genitals, and and intercourse, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huge issue. And I've actually gotten to the point where it's been super helpful for my women to sort of go to the, the, the pelvic health uh, folks and just to rule it out, uh, just to help them see, okay, there's nothing physical maybe with me. Um, so that's become a real integral part of my treatment is utilizing them more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I work with two sexual medicine docs. Yeah. One in LA, one in San Diego, and we work very closely together. And honestly, I couldn't practice as well as I do without them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the great part is that there there is becoming more of an understanding that we it has to be a holistic approach. We have to have the 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 mental, the the physical, the spiritual, all of those pieces. I do a lot of um, yoga work with my clients, which has been fantastic with uh, pelvic health and just stress reduction and um, all of that kind. Of. So yoga has become a big part of of what my what my people are are doing, and that I'm encouraging them to do. That's great. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, it's been good. Well, how can people find your book and how can they find you, Bridget? Well, you can find my book on Amazon, which is great. You can um, email me directly or go to my website and inquire about it. I, I am catching up on my website to make it a little more uh, you know, current. But right now, Amazon, it is available there. And uh, you can contact me at 518-260-0241 or Capital Region Center for Sexual Health in Troy, New York, or drbridgetmfin.com. So in my area, I don't know about you, Kimberly, but I'm kind of the only one who's really doing what I'm doing. You know, in, in my book, one of my, one of my reflections is get sex therapy with a sex therapist. Right. And so, you know, the, and, and so, yeah, specific training is, is super important. And I think the other thing too, is I, I just, I use humor. You know, we have to laugh at Me this too. stuff. We, we, so we, have to, we have to lighten up, you know, and we have to um, find the irreverence in it, find the absurdity in, in all of it. Um, humor is a big part of, of my culture. So I just yes. kind of, I use that as, as much as I can. And But people are just amazed at how all of this is tied into their entire lives and getting past penises, vaginas, orgasms, and intercourse, and expanding all of uh, what intimacy means and, and sexual pleasure, right? That's huge. For sure. And if we were practicing in the same town, I think we could be good partners because, I, you know, a lot, yeah. everything you're saying is 
I'm, I'm just shaking my head as you're talking. I'm like, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So it's yeah. good to know. Well, you want to know something crazy. Yeah, I'm looking, when I was looking at your website, you know, that, that thing you have in your office, like that metal little, uh, it's like that tall, looks like a person, yes. but with no eyes yeah. and mouth. Yeah. I have the same thing. No way. I have the same thing. <gasps> I, I kid you not. I kid you not. I'll send a picture. How funny is that? I was like, oh, I, I like this woman. I, I get her. Uh-huh. You know? I love that statue. <laughs> I have a lot of phallic objects yeah. in my office too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Have you, have you checked out sex education on Netflix? Oh, the, with the with mom Jillian and the son. I haven't, but people yeah. keep telling me I should check it out. <laughs> you should. You should. You must. I, okay, you must. I will. Yes. Well, it has yeah. been a pleasure chatting with you today. Dr. You too, you too. And I hope you can join me again and we can continue our conversation. Anytime. This was really fun and so necessary and so needed. And um, you know how to find me. I'd look forward to it. Thank you so much. Well, we certainly covered a lot in today's episode. As you can see, there's lots of interesting sexual health research being done and lots of great and informative books being written in the area of sexual health and wellness as well. And it's my mission to expose you to as much of that good research and those great books as possible. If you have questions or comments, please keep them coming. You can email me at Kimberly at sexsavvypodcast.com. Or you can leave me a message on my toll-free phone line at 844-SEX-SAVVY. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support.